The Bible story that I want to read today from God's Word is a short one. It's actually one that we, we read more of it last week. We're just going to read a little section of it today. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 17. Uh, it's on page 372 in most of your pew Bibles. And if it's not on page 372, it'll be on a page 3... Oh, 1 Kings. What did I say? Corinthians. Corinthians. Boy, that would be confusing. 1 <laughs> Kings chapter 17. Page 372. That'll get you there, or get you close. It'll get you nowhere near 1 Corinthians. Alright. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now just a quick reminder, Elijah is the Lord's prophet. He has been calling God's people to be faithful to him. And God had sent him to this brook, kind of in a desert actually, during a drought where God was feeding him and protecting him from King Ahab who wanted to kill him. And he's, God is feeding him there until verse 9 when God says this. He says, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I have a confession to make. Uh, I have been feeling kind of badly uh, about the last few sermons that I've preached. And not just because I'm sleep deprived and bleary eyed and not entirely confident they have been coherent, but um, I feel a bit like I've been hassling you. Uh, like last week I went after that Dave Ramsey guy, you know, the Christian money advice guy on the radio, and, and afterwards some of you were like, well, you know, like you were mostly right about Dave, but like I think you kind of misrepresented him. You were a little hard on him. I'm sorry. I think that's a fair point. Uh, I feel like I've been doing maybe more like yelling than usual <laughs> the last few weeks. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Phil. And I think part of the reason, to be honest, part of the reason my sermons have maybe had a, a bit more of an edge to them. Because every time I go back into Kings and I'm studying the passage for the day, what I realize is that the book of Kings has an edge to it. I mean, like, on the surface, Kings looks like a pretty straightforward history book, right? you got, like, your lists of kings and then, like, uh, when they served and who their son was and, like, what their accomplishments were, what they built and who they fought in war, things like that. But I would argue that if you are reading Kings as just kind of like this like bland sequence of historical facts, I think you're, you're reading it wrong. Because the book of Kings has an agenda. Uh, the book of Kings sees the world as pitched in like this, this battle. So for the writer of Kings, the world is locked in a kind of cosmic contest between the true God of Israel on the one hand and false gods, especially the false god named Baal. And the book of Kings is trying to force you to choose sides. And it's trying to show you that if you waver, if you give a false god even just a foothold in your life, there will be serious consequences. And for the writer of Kings, and actually for many other writers in the Old Testament, the most common way that a false god got a foothold in someone's life was when that person allowed himself to be influenced by a foreigner. Non-Israelites are an ominous presence 
in the book of Kings. So think of King Solomon from a few weeks ago, right? Um, And the consequences of him marrying all these foreign women. Or King Ahab, we read about him a couple weeks ago, uh, marrying Jezebel, the daughter of a foreign king. For both of these leaders, their associations with foreigners are at the heart of their downfall. The book of Kings is like this warning, beware associating with foreigners. And in the context of ancient Israel, this warning makes some sense. Because all of Israel's neighboring nations worshipped very different gods. They worshipped very different gods. They also operated under very different rules. And they followed very different worldviews. Gods and rules and worldviews often that were diametrically opposed to the true God. And so the true God was concerned that if you associate with people who follow these other gods, it will only be a matter of time before you begin to see their rules and worldview and God as normal. Not something to be resisted, not a threat. You know, I was thinking we have a phrase for this in our culture today. We come to see them as not bad, just different. Right? And this is a recurring concern in the, in the Bible. If you hang out enough with Baal-worshipping foreigners, you'll begin to think that Baal's not bad, just different. This is kind of the dynamic that I've been ranting about. How, like Israel, we in the United States can become, I think, kind of tentative about resisting lies in our culture. And we can be, honestly, kind of shallow about discerning the consequences of those lies. Like like this lie. I'm a self-made man. I've worked hard. I deserve what I have. Right? I earned it. Now, once you accept that lie, now you get the bonus of getting to blame the poor for their poverty. right? And you get to blame immigrants for their desper- desperation. And, and you don't need to worry, for instance, about right, conditions at the border. After all, they chose to come here, whereas your family came here the right way. Right? And so rather than strive to be holy, rather than seek to be more compassionate like Christ... We shrug, and we just kind of accept our culture's lie that that kind of treatment, it's not bad, it's just different. But the whole book of Kings calls for people to be vigilant. The whole trajectory of the book is toward calling people to choose their side, to not associate with those who have accepted these lies, to stay away from those who worship foreign gods. Those outsiders will corrupt God's people. That's been the script. And it's been clear, and it's been uncompromising until our passage today. When God utterly flips the script. So God's prophet, Elijah, is in trouble. He just confronted Israel's king. He's on the run. There's a severe drought in the region. He needs help. Now, if you were God's prophet, okay, let's put on our imaginations here. If you are God's prophet, and your whole message has been calling people to resist foreign gods and be faithful to the true God. If that's like the fight you're fighting, if you were a prophet like that, where would you expect God to send you for help? I would think God would send me to a fellow member of the resistance, right? Another faithful Israelite, a part of the holy remnant who has not bowed a knee to Baal. My guess is, if you were Elijah, you would expect God to send you to someone like you. But where does God send Elijah? Verse 9, 
a widow in Zarephath of Sidon. I made a very fancy map this week to show you all you need to know about where Zarephath of Sidon is. Sidon is not Israel, okay? Actually, you remember when Sidon last came up. It was chapter 16, verse 31. Sidon is the home of Queen Jezebel. Maybe the most notorious foreign threat in the whole Bible. That's where God sends Elijah. God's plan is to save His faithful, holy, pure prophet by sending him to practically the capital city of all that is unfaithful, unholy, and impure. There is almost no doubt that a Sidonian woman like this has been worshiping Baal her whole life. The lies of Baal, that's the air that she breathes. Elijah must have been dumbfounded. He must have been thinking, I thought the whole point of my prophetic ministry was to get God's people to avoid women from Sidon. And now you expect me to be saved by one of them? This is a scandal. And if you don't think it's a scandal, uh, if you don't think Elijah was scandalized by this, you should turn to Luke chapter 4. It's on page 1075. So this is the end uh, of Jesus' very first sermon. Very first sermon. At the end of the sermon, he references a miracle from the life of Elijah. Now, if you know your Bible, you know Elijah's a really big deal in the Bible. There are a lot of miracles of Elijah in the Bible. In fact, many of Jesus' miracles in his ministry look and sound and feel a lot like what Elijah does in Kings. Elijah's miracles are a big deal. They cast a long shadow. But only one of Elijah's miracles is ever mentioned by name by Jesus. And it's not the time that he brought fire from heaven or the time that he multiplied food or the time that he was fed by birds or the time that he raised a boy to life. The only miracle Jesus mentions from Elijah's life is this, that God would send Elijah to a foreign woman for help. That's the miracle he mentions. Luke 4, 25, Jesus says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, do you remember how the good Jewish people in Jesus' synagogue in Luke 4, how they responded when Jesus brought up this story? They tried to kill him. Why? Because they knew the script of Kings. Deep in their bones, they knew that their job as God's people was to be holy, to be faithful, to avoid foreign influence. They knew that the story of this widow was an aberration. They knew it did not fit the script. And they were so offended that Jesus would bring it up that they tried to throw him off a cliff. So what's going on here? Why is this detail about this Sidonian woman, this detail that is so obviously off script, why is it included in Kings? And why did Jesus risk his life to bring it up again? Well, I think it's because this story illustrates one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. 
and maybe the very heart of the reason Jesus came at all, which is this. Here's the paradox. God calls his people to an incredibly high standard of holiness. Uh, Anyone who tells you differently is lying. (laughs) Uh, God calls his people to be radically devoted to God and God alone, to strive constantly for holiness, to be people who value the poor and the weak. Basically, we are called to have hearts like God's heart. Okay, That's the standard here. Like a married couple... God calls us to be faithful to Him no matter what. Right? You may have no other gods before me. We must be absolutely committed to Him. We must be monogamous in our relationship to God. And at the very same time, that we must be exclusively devoted to nobody but our God, our God offers His grace to anybody. To anybody. I mean, it is hard to imagine a person alive in the time of Elijah who would be less deserving of being used by and blessed by God than this widow of Zarephath. She's not a faithful God follower. She's not holy. She's not pure. She's not making an effort. She's not proved herself. She's not credentialed. She's not authorized. She's not worthy. She is a Baal-worshipping pagan whose life is in such shambles we learn later she can't even feed herself or her kids. And God says, yeah, I'm going to use her to save my prophet. God would use her not once but twice to witness some of the most incredible signs of God's power in human history. All this despite the fact that any reader of Kings knows she does not belong in this story. Yet God chooses her anyway. And dear friends, this is the paradox of the Christian faith. A paradox I think we saw exhibited just a few minutes ago with Daniel's baptism. On the one hand, God expects those who have received His grace to be radically changed. I mean, Lauren and I and and all of us, right, made these promises to teach Daniel how to live differently, how to be faithful, how to follow Jesus, how to live into his kingdom. We made promises to teach him to make this radical choice for God. Nothing less than that is expected of those who encounter the grace of God. And at the very same time, it is patently obvious to anyone paying attention that Daniel has done not one thing to deserve the grace that God offers him. He's four weeks old. Now, maybe you say, well, you know, he's a pastor's kid, right? Um, he comes from good stock, you know? And maybe we all assume he's going to turn out great, and he's going to love the Lord, and he's going to be a preacher like his daddy. Maybe. But I don't know that. You don't know that. And here's the thing. We didn't offer the grace of God to Daniel based on our strong hunch of how deserving he eventually would be. We offered it to Daniel, knowing nothing about Daniel. But knowing the most important thing about God. Which is that for him, it's about grace. You know what this widow had going for her? Right? I mean, by the standards of her day, she was a loser. I mean, she was utterly unqualified. She did have two things going for her. And I'll be honest, these two things are the things that I pray most fervently Daniel will have going for him someday. 
First, when Elijah tells her about the true God of Israel, maybe the first time in her life she ever hears about him, she responds in faith. Elijah tells her that she can trust the Lord. Even with her own life, right? He asks her to feed him before she feeds herself or her son. And he promises that God will provide. And she trusts. The first thing she has going for her is just this simple faith that God can save her. The second thing she has going for her is that she knows she doesn't deserve it. Uh, So in verse 18, she's heartbroken. Uh, Her son has died, and she asks if Elijah has come simply to remind her of her sin. She knows. She knows. She knows that she has not lived up to the standard of the God of Israel. She knows better than anybody. She knows she's not been faithful or holy or pure or all the other things. She knows she's like the least religious person around. She knows that her closet is full of baggage. She knows she does not deserve to be saved. But dear friends of Jesus Christ, it is precisely knowing that that resolves the paradox. The only people who cannot receive the grace of God are those who think they deserve it. The only people who cannot receive the grace of God are those who think they deserve it. To appreciate the grace of God, to be changed by it, we need only what this woman had which is not the right kind of background and not the right kind of family and not a perfectly nuanced theology and not a long list of references. We don't need to be better than other people or have our lives more put together. The only thing you need to be changed by the grace of God is to acknowledge you've fallen short and to trust that God can save you anyway. Let's pray together.